This is the Unpacked Podcast, brought to you by the Bay Area Mountain Rescue Unit. In this episode, I get the opportunity to talk with Cody Townsend, a professional skier, ski mountaineer, and producer of The 50 Project. We discuss his roots in ski mountaineering, safety in the backcountry, and share some personal stories along the way. Yeah, well, I mean, first, uh, I really, really appreciate you just taking the time out of your schedule right now. I'm sure, you know, things are hectic for everybody, but it really means a lot uh, to me and uh, also to Bamru that you're willing to jump on and talk about some of this stuff. Um, But yeah. um, No, stoked to be here. Great. Um, Well, a little bit about yourself, um, for those that don't know, um, you're a professional skier, uh, ski mountaineer, host of the 50, but um, yeah, anything else you want to add to that? Uh, Anything you've got going on? I know you're also involved with uh, Arcade, your co-founder there. Yeah, I mean, mainly I would definitely just put it as a professional skier and uh, uh, it's gone through many different forms over being a professional skier, but currently these days is on the more ski mountaineering side. And as you mentioned, uh, yeah, also a business owner with uh, Arcade Belts um, and uh, kind of producer of this project and just kind of a lot of little things, but all focused generally towards one goal, which is to ski and be in the mountains as much as possible. Yeah, that's a it's an awesome goal to have. I'm very uh, aspiring to that goal as well as, but not having a nine to five kind of gets in the way of that. Um, yeah, look, it's a, it's a little bit tougher. I think that's why I kind of really looked at it when I was young, and I was like, well, this is the one thing I want to do, so I don't have to do a nine to five, so I can support it. I was like, I got I got one option, and uh, I kind of I went the pro skier route, and somehow it worked out. Yeah, that's that's really great, and I think that's a good segue into um, you know your traditional on resort skiing and uh, ski competitions. I know you've uh, got a background in ski racing and then how did that transition look like, or what was that evolution? And like, kind of, I guess what was exciting about going from that world into uh, more ski mountaineering and getting into the backcountry and, and touring and things like that. Yeah. I mean, what happened was I grew up skiing in Squaw Valley. I'm originally from Santa Cruz, California and was like a, just a weekend warrior and was uh, a ski racer, an alpine ski racer. And I was doing fairly well at that and kind of on this path for um, US ski team and World Cup and all that stuff. And that path slowly started to fade out both in just my performance and just in also my own dreams. Um, and during that time at Squaw, essentially the free ski revolution was happening. So um, um, all the major guys were all living in squaws. So it was Shane McConkey, Kent Greitler, Tanner Hall, C.R. Johnson. It was like the epicenter and the birthplace of kind of this new movement of, of free skiing. And I was ski race training and also free skiing as much as possible and just witnessing this go down in front of my very face while also getting to ski with these guys and then starting to watch them in the movies. And to me, um, ski racing, I just got a little, you know, I wasn't, didn't have as much passion for it anymore. And that passion started to translate in worse and worse results. And although I did it till I was 20 years old, because I still was doing okay at it, I really started to get this pull of skiing powder and jumping off cliffs. I mean, there's, it's not too much you can explain to why skiing powder and jumping off cliffs is fun, but it just was. It's just, it started drawing me in heavily. And then from there, 
you know, starting to be in ski movies and whatnot, you start to experience the backcountry for the first time, shooting off the resort and, uh, you know, going to where we used to be worried about trying to get first tracks at squat. You're in the backcountry and everything is first tracks and your whole entire perception of what skiing changes. And uh, back when I was uh, about 20 till about 30, pretty much all my access to the backcountry was all mechanized. So uh, lots of snowmobile access um, and a bit of hel helicopter access. And that was kind of the, the du jour at the time. And it was the way that we got to progress our kind of downhill performance skiing as quick as possible and uh, allow you to do, you know, the raddest stuff on skis at that time. And over time, um, the the technology and and skis and bindings and boots started to evolve to a point where it previously was that backcountry ski equipment was pretty antiquated like you could get out there but the downhill performance was really poor and growing up with that downhill racing and kind of free ride uh performance aspect i just couldn't compromise on the downhill um as this technology started to come come into fruition i started to use it all of a sudden i started to realize like how fun ski touring was and how enjoyable accessing your own lines was. And it just started from basic ski touring to starting to look to bigger, bigger kind of lines to more expedition style trips and, uh, you know, eventually going to Alaska and trying to do the same lines we were doing out of the helicopter, but doing it on your own two feet. And, you know, that essentially explains 15 years of this progression of, of learning the mountains and beginning to essentially access all my all my own lines under human power and kind of brings us to where I am today, which is pretty much all I do is under human power and uh, not strictly for any kind of environmental or so, uh, uh, social reasons. It's just because I enjoy it the most um i think it's the, the most fun way to ski these days for me it's uh the way i learn the mountains the best the way i experience the mountains the best and uh yeah, i truly enjoy it yeah no i mean i think you hit the nail on the head a couple of times there um I, I think when you ski off piece a little bit and you skim over your first untouched fresh tracks and, and float over that first coat of powder you're like oh i get it <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. totally understand why people, uh, you know, kill themselves hiking in 10 miles to get to some spots that no one's ever run down before. Um, and then, you know, you, you touched upon something really interesting there about the progression of equipment and technology, um, you know, especially with, you know, brands coming out with things like the, the Atomic Shift or the Solomon Shift and how the uphill performance is now equal to the um, uh, downhill performance. And it's making it uh, much more approachable, which brings about a really interesting paradigm where the um, technology seems to ebb and flow with the tolerance for risk that people are willing to take and then, you know, the, what people are comfortable with and then they end up pushing themselves. Like the technology allows them to push themselves a little further, get into some more serious terrain and then, you know, people start to plateau a little bit and then they learn more techniques. The technology catches up again and it kind of does this like ebb and flow as the graph gets a little bit higher is like what the terrain is that people are able to uh ski on and just the the lines that people are able to do it's it's pretty incredible like you know watching some of the films out there now with you guys and seeing some of the things you're able to hit and access just even under human power is pretty incredible yeah no it's the, the progression of the technology is allowed what is essentially the absolute explosion of backcountry skiing over the last few years. Um, you know, when I first started, there was very few people actually 
going in the backcountry. And if they were, it was usually versus with snowmobiles. <clears throat> and there was these select few that are out there doing it, but it was very quiet and you didn't really know about it. And now, because that technology is so good, you're just seeing so many, so many more people out in the backcountry. And, and as you said, it allows you to, to push yourself a little bit further. Um, I think it's always though, it's not necessarily because of the technology. And I think it, what you described as if it's like catching up, the technology generally uh, follows the desire. So you're seeing more people and, and people at the top of the sport that see maybe a deficiency in their equipment and a dream of a certain line or a certain goal. And you generally are pushing the equipment companies to catch up with that dream. So um, it is an ebb and flow. And uh, usually I kind of find that the technology is a, always a little bit behind of what people actually want to do. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and there's this really weird intersection or incredible intersection now where you pair certain forms of technology that like you're saying um, snowmobiles to get part of the way there then the rest of the way is human powered that gains you a lot of access and then I, you know i was watching a film the name is escaping me now but there's uh some guys from france that they're doing some paragliding in so they, oh yeah they hike in i think this is in alaska on a glacier and then they bring all the paragliding equipment and then they launch themselves from a mini runway there and then actually uh, strap the skier to the front of the pilot and then release the skier from the paraglider onto the run and immediately start skiing. So, you know, you don't even need a helicopter now to reach some of these spots. And yeah. um, it's really interesting, you know, from a chairlift to a helicopter, you know, you're kind of, you know, skimming over what you would normally hike over and reading the terrain a little bit less. And I think, you know, under human power, you get to analyze your run on your way up, which is uh, a huge advantage and it kind of makes the turns a little sweeter on the way down, um, earning those, so to speak. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. It does make it sweeter. Sometimes if you're not physically fit though, it can make them worse because then you're just really tired. <laughs> sure. Yeah, for <laughs> um, sure. And, and then, and then there's a trade-off generally, you know, you're always, uh, on the way up, uh, you're on the face and you're exposed for a lot longer than if you were to access it top down from like a helicopter or a snowmobile. So um, there, there's a trade-off that you generally get with conditions that are generally worse because um, they're, um, they're, you know, uh, more hard pack and more stable to, to secure your way up for the, the whole way as opposed to, you know, being out of a helicopter, you just drop in and ski it top down. It's pretty easy. Right. And then um, when you first uh, were entering the backcountry and uh, skimming the surface of ski mountaineering, did you just kind of launch yourself into that and, and figure it out as you went? Or were there people that were kind of, um, you know, your mentor and um, or mentors and, you know, what, what kind of training um, did you have at first? Or did you realize after your first time out, like, oh, man, I need to kind of brush up on some of these skills and you know, realizing that um, you're in the wilderness now and, you know, things aren't, uh, there's no avalanche mitigation or anything out there. You kind of have to do your own risk assessment and so on. Yeah. And I would say like the first and most important factor to this transition from what I went through was, is just straight experience, experience and time spent in the mountains. Um, the, the line between like ski touring and ski mountaineering is pretty blurry. No one really knows what that is. Um, and then, you know, 
everyone kind of thinks of ski mountaineering, it's like all of a sudden you got ice axes and you got ropes and uh, crampons and all that stuff. I mean, that part of the skill set in ski mountaineering is actually quite easy to learn and it's quite, uh, um, it, it's quick to go through and you can practice in your backyard ropes and crampons and ice axes. It's really that, that transition and that part of it, people look as intimidating part of it. And if you have that stuff, all of a sudden you see mountaineering, but the, the number one factor that essentially most people disregard or don't know about is that it's actually your knowledge of mountains, your knowledge of snow, your experience in there is far more important to that progression to getting into kind of ski mountaineering. So for me, spending 15 years um, in the backcountry with mechanized access, but also with mentors, with guides, and like just kind of imbibing all these learn uh, these lessons from the people I was with, and just on a daily basis learning what you know, feeling the snow every day and feeling how it it changes and what's safe, what's unsafe, and just kind of being out there was the the single biggest transition for me. It was when I started feeling comfortable with. Uh, assessing my own risk and assessing the situation out there that I was like, okay, now you can start to access this under human power because as, as I said before, and as you said, you're, you're kind of in danger for a lot longer period of time when you're climbing for your own line, as opposed to being top down. So um, for me, it was just like a, a natural transition of just learning the mountains and being there with uh, with guides and out of helicopters and all of a sudden going, realizing like, well, there's way more to learn. And there's a whole other factor of climbing up for the lines that I, I really want to learn about. And I had a few mentors, um, generally they're pretty close friends that would been into this for longer than I have. So like Chris Rubens, who's on the Solomon team, I went on a few kind of expedition style trips with him and he's just so dialed and has such good mountain knowledge that I learned a lot from him. Um, there's another guy, Dave Treadway, who unfortunately passed away last year, who was a big part of this learning curve for myself of climbing steep lines for my first time and, you know, going deep, deep, like we were going on snowmobiles um, up to a hundred miles deep into the backcountry, and then climbing for our lines and, you know, factoring all your rescue and your your fitness and getting home that night and just all the decisions that you have to make when you're on your own and you don't have a safety net of a helicopter and guides around you um dave was a huge part of that so um yeah i definitely had mentors and i feel like i still have mentors i think this project i'm currently doing um the 50 it it, every time I go out there, I'm learning something. And I've been really fortunate to going out with some incredibly experienced people like a, like a Jimmy Chin, for instance, and learn lessons from him. Yeah, that's, that's so important. Um, I think to have those, those mentors and having people that have kind of made some mistakes of their own and they can pass on their learnings to you. Uh, cause so often, um, even with, uh, recruiting for BAMRU, um, you know, we, we see we see folks come in with some crazy skill sets. Um, you know, they could be probably like the best trial climber we've ever seen or, um, you know, somebody has a military background. Um, but, you know, we always harp on the fact that, you know, we want people that are just constantly going out in the backcountry, constantly exposed to the wilderness. Um, it's no one specific skill set that's going to get you through the door um, and keep you safe while you're out there. It's just this propensity for constantly keeping up the perishable skills and almost like the the instinct of um yeah. being in that environment and kind of being in tune with the surroundings it's, it's so much more important than you know knowing how to perform a crevasse rescue because you can 
always learn that and brush up on that, you know, once or twice a year. Like I just went through my ARI certification this year, um, which was great. It was a great refresher. Um, but you know, it's no substitute for, for getting out there and getting the experience. Yeah, no. And then that experience and going out with mentors and is something that is just like, you know, I realized when I got to go out with Jimmy last year and he tell me, told me something that seemed like a lesson he's learned over time. Well, that lesson came from, you know, someone like, uh, Conrad Anchor and who then learned from people like Mug Stump and you're realizing there's just like this like hundred years of alpinism and making decisions in the mountains getting uh, flown to you in a quick second and that that experience and those mentorships are just absolutely essential and as you're speaking to skill sets like I find the single most important skill set you can have in the mountains is decision making um, you know like you said the uh, learning how to crevasse rescue is really important, but learning how to navigate through crevasses is far more important because uh, you don't want to fall in or learning how to know, say, as you're reaching a glacier that this is unsafe or this is how we're going to do it safely or this is the system we need to set up to do it safely or now is not at the right time, but tomorrow could be or tonight could be because it freezes over. Those That experience and decision making is the far, by far the most important skill set you can have in the mountains yeah i would i would completely agree i remember um going back to what i was saying about you know certifying for airy this year um you know i got i got back to our our ski lease up in uh tahoe and then some of our friends that are in the house with us they were asking like oh what do you do when you get caught in an avalanche and i said at that point it's probably too late <laughs> yeah you know you you want to do everything in your power to uh, mitigate even getting in the way of something like that um you know avoiding avoiding the cornices and you know avoiding the you know the um risks that crevasses pose to you and you know you want to do everything up front to not even let those factors come into play because by the time you've entered that situation you're kind of reacting um and at that point if you don't have those skills down path and you haven't brushed up on them and you don't have like you're saying the experience and the and the instinct things can go wrong really, really quick. Um, so, you know, I, I, like, I think, you know, we totally agree that um, skill sets are important and there's trainings for them and there's gear that can help you in certain ways, but, you know, getting out there, getting just the, the volume of experience out in the wilderness and on the mountain is just so much more powerful. Yeah, no, definitely it, it is because, as you're saying, like you're in the avalanche, it's it's too late. You're like if you have an airbag, you can pull that, but that only gives you a certain percentage higher chance of surviving it. Um, your goal is like if you're ski touring up, you're um, always thinking you're like, oh, it's all of a sudden getting a tiny bit warmer, and you see up to your right, there's a little bit of a shoot. Oh, that thing has a little bit of snow, and there's a little bit of south exposure on one of those panels. That thing could rip if this temperature keeps going up so i'm going to move left or turn around and try a different route all those things and those that mountain knowledge is the, the most important skill set you can have and you know i see a lot of people and especially with the popularity of this project they ask me like how do i get into this and you, i just try and tell them I'm like it's kind of a thing that's a, like a decade minimum to get into this don't you know don't expect you're just going to learn this tomorrow and be safe like it's a it's a very long-term process and uh you know that's the great part about skiing is you can do it for quite a long time in your life yeah absolutely and, and i think that's a good um segue into uh something I, I you know been getting a lot of questions about is like how does somebody 
who is, you know, on resort or has done a little bit of um, like guided tours and, and things like that, really get into the, the ski mountaineering space. Um, you know, someone who probably doesn't have that mountaineering skill set to match with their skiing. Because, you know, you have these, you know, fantastic skiers um, that are, you know, can send, you know, crazy lines off the, the fingers on KT22. But, um, you know, going out into the backcountry is a whole different ball game. Um, and, you know, what kind of trainings do you recommend? And, um, you know, what was, what was your path in, in, in your training and your courses? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, for someone that wants to get into it, it's obviously, I would always recommend the first thing is yeah, get your Abbey one. Um, maybe take a ski mountaineering ropes kind of course, a ropes rescue course, take those basic things. Those are kind of just the, the, the basic skill sets you need to have. But the, the key thing to me is just being there and finding a group, um, with potential mentors to go out with. So, um, that's can be some of the hardest part for people that maybe don't necessarily live in the mountains full time because uh, you need to find a network of people, a network of friends that understand the mountains and can help move you along through there so you can follow along. Um, and hopefully you have this basic skill set that allows you to even go out with them and then allows you to help make decisions throughout the day. Um, the, the finding a network of friends and mentors is, is the hardest part, but it's, I think, the most important part. Um, for me, it's uh, kind of people might like balk at this, but I, I've never taken an avalanche course. I actually teach avalanche courses now, but I've never truly even taken a first one. Um, my experience I learned was just through 15 plus years, um, 70 plus days a year in the backcountry, And I was very fortunate enough in those first uh, five to 10 years to be out there always with people that have more experience than me. So I was always the young kid that was on the film group. Um, I was 10 years younger than everyone else out there. Um, and then I was also quite often on these film trips with guides. So um, I just knew I didn't have the knowledge to make these decisions for myself, but I didn't feel comfortable not having that knowledge. So I was just picking their brains left and right. Um, and then slowly every day, just kind of learning small lessons um, and then just being kind of out there and feeling through it. So, um, you know, I have taken other sort of courses like a ropes rescue course I've, um, and I brush up on all these skills every year, but it's, it's kind of weird to for me to tell people take this Abby one course when you've uh, when I've never done one myself, but I'm also the other option is like take an Abby one and maybe it'll cut a year or two off your learning process or you do like I did, which is live in the mountains and find uh, some of the best people and uh, ski mountaineers and backcountry skiers and skiers in the world to go out with for 10 plus years uh, every day and learn that way. Um, Usually starting the Abbey one is what most people are like, ah, oh, that sounds a little bit easier. Um, but I do think the the way I did it is actually a little bit more thorough um, and, uh, you know, continually questing to uh, up your knowledge the entire time is really important too. Like I, uh, I still feel like I've got so much to learn. And I think if you have that sensation that you need to continue to learn, then it's going to help you continue to make better decisions every day. Um, and, and, you know, obviously that's combined with, uh, your risk-taking kind of, uh, 
skill set or not skill set, essentially your adversity to risk and um, putting that on a line that is comfortable with your partners and, you know, not taking too much risk, but also sometimes pushing through. Those are, those are the hard, uh, the hard things of backcountry skiing to kind of tell people about because it's, to me, it's part science and it's part art. Yeah, no, I think um, I fully support, uh, you know, finding that social dynamic that works for you and finding the people that you trust because um, it is such a game about trust um, out there and, you know, finding the people that you look up to and, and have that uh, depth of experience because, you know, even just you saying 10 to 15 years out there and you're still learning and, and, and still a student, uh, it's so important to kind of approach it with that mindset because you will never know everything. Um, and the classes and the courses, the books, the, the articles and things like that are always good to support. And they're kind of like the cherries on top, but, uh, it's kind of, it's the metaphor I always use is, you know, you have someone coming into a job that's got, you know, 10 years experience. And then you got, you know, a freshie out of college with like some flashy degree. Um, you know, which one would you want as like the leader in your group? Um, and, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a bit of both, but I, I think, you know, definitely weighting the real world experience um, and, and supplementing that with uh, the courses is just the best approach to that, that problem. Um, yeah, for sure. And it's generally the people I find best in the mountains have all of it. Um, so, uh, you know, because you're an IFMGA certified guide and have one of the toughest absolute guide certs in the world that takes seven to 10 years to get through, doesn't actually necessarily mean you make good decisions in the backcountry. But those people I've been in there that um, have this absolute giant depth of knowledge from their experience and that training, you're like, well, those are the people I want to go in the mountains with because, uh, you know, they are going to make the good decisions to not get us into trouble, but can rescue us when we're out of trouble, you know, like that or yeah. get into trouble. So, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic of backcountry skiing. And it's again, why I say it's kind of like it's part science and it's part art. Yeah, totally. And, I, you know, I think the even going into the classroom now they're starting to pivot their approach to how they train people and they're they're waiting more of that social dynamic more of that influence from the group making decisions rather than the hard skill sets of you know analyzing the snowpack and like how to use your shovel and and things like that because a lot of that you can learn on your own time and they're pretty cut and dry black and white skill sets um but you know, that gray, gray area of, you know, what to do when someone's uncomfortable with, you know, taking that route and how to say no to that. Um, you know, they even go down into what is the most ideal uh, makeup of a group in terms of demographics. Is it, you know, equal parts, male, female or age groups? Because a lot of those actually shift the paradigm and how decisions get made within a group when you're out in the wilderness. And I'm curious as to like your take on, um, you know, the group that you go out with, you know, what, what does that group look like? Um, and, and how has it like morphed and changed over the years? And, um, you know, how do you see social media and the pressure from, you know, really hitting that line when you, you know, hike 10 miles to get out there and, you know, you want to, you want to come back with that photo or that video and like, what does that do to influence the decision-making process? Yeah. And first, uh, first of like the group, um, and the group dynamic, I find that, the, um, one of the, most important things and i'm i'm very kind of 
judgmental and very picky with my partners. And um, I, I have close friends that I love to ski with that I try not to go into the backcountry or do a very challenging line with because we have different risk tolerances and I see them make decisions that um, you know, make me uncomfortable and I will just kind of avoid that person. And it's a tough one to do, especially when that person's like hitting you up, like, Hey, I want to go out there with you. And you're kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know. Then like, it's a, it's a really hard dynamic, but it's something that I think is critically important. And that's why I kind of have my group of people that I go out with and I'm very, um, uh, kind of stick to those guys and, and girls. And then from there, you know, I, with this project, I'm kind of going out with quite often a lot of new people that I maybe haven't been in the mountains too much. And I, I do some serious background checks on everybody. I will call all their partners, try and do as much as possible. But then even when I'm in the field and I'm, I'm like, I'm secretly judging them the entire time and, you know, questioning, like trying to get it out of them. Like, where's your risk tolerance? Where's your turnaround point? And how does that compare to mine? Um, because I feel like I'm pretty conservative and I want to make sure that that person is on the same path because, you know, that person, let's say the person's like pushes you through and, you, and you're successful. Well, that's the hard part to know is like, did you push through and you're successful and you just barely actually got away with it and you were, uh, you know, the next time it's going to catch up to you with, which is this kind of concept I've started to practice and uh, teach in avalanche courses called normalization of deviance, which is essentially, are you normalizing bad decision making by pushing through or vice versa? Are you normalizing just like turning around at every little, you know, shift of the wind and you actually can push through. So finding those people that you're with is like critically important. Um, and then from there for like the social media game, I feel people overrate it. Um, I think one, you, we are influencing a lot of people to try to do these things and go to the backcountry. Um, I hope with a lot of the stuff that I do, I'm trying to influence them also to be safe about this and be, you know, willing to turn around. Um, for me, like I feel no pressure when I'm out there. I've never in my life uh, sat at, you know, a decision-making point and thought where your life is on the line and being like, well, man, if I can just go this next hundred feet, we'll, we'll be able to finish this or this video will be great. Like, I don't know, like for me, if my life's on the line, like it's pretty easy to not think about your Instagram or your video that you're putting out. You're kind of just thinking about your life the whole time. So I don't personally have any influence. I think there potentially are other people. I've seen it maybe once or twice in my last like five to six years. Um, and yeah, it, it sucks to see that, but if the the form is now Instagram, the form would have been uh, ski film back in the day, you know, as old as Warren Miller or something like that. So it's, uh, or it could be just their group of buddies that are out there or the bar at the end of the day. So I don't think the, the format is an influence. I think it's just kind of an easy way, easy thing to blame quite often, but the person that is making decisions like that would probably make the same decision if Instagram didn't uh, exist. Um, they would do it so, yeah, they could go to the bar and brag to their buddies that day. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of am not such like a harper on it because I don't think it's truly pushing people to make bad decisions. Might be pushing more people to be out there, 
Um, but I don't think it's pushing them to make truly bad decisions. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that take. And um, something that I've actually seen in a lot of the films, and I think even in, in the 50, um, was this awesome moment when you reach the point where you're saying, we should turn around now, like, the, you know, the weather is socking in or man, the, the texture of, of the snowpack is not making me feel good. And you actually, at, when you get back, you're actually congratulating each other on making the right decision. And I think that's like some of the most powerful moments of the series is just having the, the ability to, you know, be that in tune with your surroundings and like, you know, not being um, negative about the experience of not completing the, the the goal of the day and actually rewarding each other for making the right decision um i think yeah, that was no. like one of the most some of the most powerful moments yeah i think it's i mean it's important to one a debrief at the end of the day and i think it's important to celebrate turning around because um i think it honestly it takes more guts and more chutzpah to turn around than to keep going if you're 90 percent up a line and you're deciding uh, with 10% left to turn around, like that is essentially telling you if this is your goal to do this one day, it might be uh, another day. It might be in many years that you come back to actually get to do this. That takes a lot more balls, in my opinion, to say like, I will like shut down my current dream because I feel like this is unsafe to extend that for a lot longer. Um, you know, it's, uh, and, and you should be celebrating that fact because you should be celebrating the fact that you're came home alive that day. And that is the number one goal is to be live to ski another day. So when, you know, one person in my group makes it as the decision that it is, they feel like it's dangerous and we're turning around, I will always bow to that person and we turn around because I don't want to train that person to, you know, say we, I push them and we're successful to then again, get into that normalization of deviance kind of cycle where they're like, uh, maybe, maybe it was just me being scared. And in all honesty, it was me not seeing the, the red flags that were there. And then they, the next time see red flags again. And all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm not going to speak up. Like the Cody's got it. It'll be in control. And then bad stuff happens. So it's super, super important to kind of come down, debrief, talk about why you, you turned around and also to like, cheers to it being like, yeah, we're still here guys. Like the mountain's <laughs> not going anywhere. So, um, when, and showing that in the, the series, I think was pretty, uh, pretty critically important to it because we wanted to show that like success is not always the name of the game. Like, if you're successful 100% of the time while you're in the backcountry, you're actually probably doing something wrong. You're probably making poor decisions while, while out there. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and, I, you know, I think it, it brings up this really interesting, um, the, the preparation going into a trip like this is so monumental. Like, you know, you get to see um, you know, the, the, the sizzle reels on, on films and, um, like all the Instagram posts and things. And, um, you know, a majority of the episodes in the 50 were, you know, the hike up and the, and the, the ski down and, you know, like the high fives afterwards. And then, you know, I, you know, really appreciated you guys going through the whole process recently and talking about the tools, the gear, all of the, the, um, things going on in the background leading up until that point. 
because it's it's almost it's such a small part of it you know you have uh you know like a 12 to 15 hour day but leading up into that point you know there's days of preparation and like days afterwards like you're saying going through the debrief and figuring out what could have been done better you know um was that the right um piece of equipment to take up with me that day and just like constantly like assessing and reassessing the whole um process and even um you know after you walk out the door when you've taken a look at the, the the topo maps and you've you know you've taken a look at the weather you've called all the locals like a couple of times you know you're still going through that process digging hasty pits on on your ascent um constantly checking um you know the wind direction and you know oh man what's that off in the distance is, is that going to hit us at this point in time it's just like you're constantly working through equations in your head and i'm just i'm trying to um you know, could you go into a little bit about like what you were uh, going through in that yeah. episode of like all the preparation leading up to that point and even like the preparation in real time of, you know, con- constantly analyzing snowpack and constantly an- analyzing, like you're saying, like the group dynamics and, you know, vibing off of somebody that's like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm feeling a little bit uh, skittish about this section. You know, can we talk about it? Yeah, no, it's um, one of the goals of the project to me was uh when i was kind of formulating it and i was like putting it out there i was telling people in my inner circle i was like this is going to be 90 percent not skiing it's going to be everything that goes into that ski day because personally i found it really interesting um i found that you know you're going out like let's say an expedition to alaska and you might wait two weeks just to ski that one line well it also might be years of experience before that that might lead you to that two weeks and and then as you're going up and making the decisions through the day you're you're essentially making uh judgment calls for every step foot forward um i always say like it takes uh, like 10 yeses to continue and it takes one no to turn around <clears throat> so always when i'm on my way up i'm continually asking myself and observing like that wind in the corner is that a, is that a problem and you're like uh no it's not it shouldn't be a problem so like can i move forward yes uh okay the snow just changed after I made 10 feet of progress up this couloir, feels a tiny bit slabbier underfoot. And then you check it out, dig a hasty pit. Is this a problem? Can I mitigate this? Is it a turnaround point? And if you come to that decision that like, no, these are all, um, uh, you know, not problems that I foresee uh, creating any trouble, then yes, I can take another step forward. And you're just kind of constantly seeking and asking questions throughout the day, uh, analyzing every little detail that you can see out there. And I think that's what I've seen in the the people that, um, what I think have the best decision-making in the mountains are doing that throughout the day. And then, you know, for the project highlighting that, like that doesn't just start the day of, that starts the day before, that starts the week before. Um, And then for even me, that experience, like it's like takes the years before as well. So, just knowing like to show up into the Tetons in late March comes from experience of knowing kind of the seasonal patterns of the snowpack in the Tetons, as well as the human patterns um, that are, you know, there because like the Grand Teton, the two biggest hazards on the mountain are warming and people. If you have people climbing above you or skiing above you, it's a really, really bad situation. So uh, learning that over the, my time in the mountains and experience with other people is like, cool, I'm going to show up in late March. 
um, that's a good time for snowpack being safe um, and not big warming and not a lot of people. So all these kind of things is what we're trying to highlight in the project, the 90% the of the, the show that's not, not uh, skiing. But even then, like, <clears throat> I feel like we're giving people a pretty in-depth uh, look at what we do. And it's still, even then, I feel like it's super surface. Like when we show looking at a mountain with binoculars, we show it for three to five seconds, you're like, well, I actually looked at that for two days like that. And I watched what the, the warming and the snow was doing. And I'm constantly seeking every uh, angle that I can look at, not just my line, but like, uh, what is that aspect and what is elevation? I see a rollerball. Let me look in at that. What is that rollerball telling me? And so it's this uh, constant kind of game of observation and trying to ask yourself questions and see if that is going to pose hazards to, to you or to the day. Yeah, no, I think that's that's so important and it's highlighted, I think, very well, um, even though you're saying it's just skimming the surface of it. Um, but, you know, just the preparation and the constant observation that goes into a project like that is just monumental. And um, it's, it's great that you guys are highlighting that because it's so important. It's almost, you know, the bulk of the problem. It's not just, you know, the hike up and the ski down. It's like, you know, you're saying the other 90 percent is the days before and after and during. Um, there's just constant observation. So it's, it's really important to keep top of mind. Um, mm -hmm. And then. I think another thing that you guys highlighted really well too is just going through um, like the the gear and and going through what is important to you and, and essential to get through a, a trip like that. Um, and you know, with the evolution in technology, you know, you, you have like three sets of skis to pick through and different touring binding setups, and um, you, know, you mentioned the ice axes and everything like that. And um, I guess what, what's the decision making process to go through the checklist of things that you need to bring um on a trip like that yeah no it starts your knowledge of your gear and then your knowledge of how you interact with that gear and then your knowledge of what you forecast that gear is going to be like on the line is really really important and that only kind of comes through experience um so for me like you know i have three sets of ice axes that are living in my truck and those ice axes are going to perform differently every single time so um, like for instance, <clears throat> when it comes to gear, like I'm constantly seeking the best new stuff out there. I just found these ice axes that are made in Russia that weigh 180 grams. They took me two years to actually acquire. Um, and through my experience with them, if I'm going on a big, massive day, it's not necessarily the most technical climbing, but I'll need ice axes. Those are going to help me be more successful because it lightens my load so much, yet I still have safety with them. But well, let's say it's the grand and it's a huge day and you're actually going to be climbing blue ice. You're like, well, then I'm going to take the next set up being something that's a little heavier, but a little bit more secure on ice. Um, so these, this knowledge, like I'm constantly like evaluating my gear, looking for new, the best stuff, because it truly does help you be successful. Um, and then trying to gain knowledge of that gear um, before you're actually putting it to the, the full test. So you don't want to be on, on, you know, one of the gnarliest lines you've ever tried with brand new gear. Um, even though it's funny because one of the episodes I do mention, I'm in brand new boots, but that's kind of because <laughs> I, <laughs> I actually, I'm very, very comfortable skiing on brand new boots and I've done that for so long. That's like first turns uh, on new boots to me is nothing, but first, you know, 
first uh, chink of an ice axe and ice. That's pretty new to me still. So that is something I wouldn't want to do. Um, your gear is critically important and understanding your gear is critically important. Yeah. And just for people listening in, um, the I think it's the Petzl Gully is considered a pretty ultralight ice axe and that's 280 grams. So the one yeah. you're referencing is quite light. Um, Which is the Petzl Gully is the single best ice axe all around ice axe for ski mountaineering I've ever found. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sponsored by them. I'm just <laughs> I'm like that is like pretty much everyone I know is using that ice axe. It is amazing. It is light. It is strong. It'll do pretty much everything. But yeah. These new ice axes I found, oof, the hair, like, it's like lifting feathers up with, like, uh, titanium spikes at the end of them. They're, they're so cool. I have not heard of that. I think I need a sidebar combo because I'm interested. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when it even comes down to things, um, you know, ice axes and, and uh, boots and skis and things are, are great. But, like, I think it, that especially comes down to um, knowing your safety equipment, Um you know, we, we're always, um, you know, trying to get people to know their gear inside and out, especially when it comes to things like beacons, um, you know, avalanche transceivers, because they're all very, very different. You know, ice axes have, um, just as an example, some, you know, minute differences, uh, across the, the lineup, um, and across different brands, but they all kind of work relatively the same. Um, but when you get down to like different user interfaces and, and ranges and, you know, especially in a situation where you're trying to locate somebody that's buried in an avalanche, you don't want the first time you're looking at your avalanche transceiver to be during a rescue situation or, um, any situation where your, you know, your, your, um, adrenaline's pumping and your anxiety's kind of heightened, um, you have to work that inside and out. And I, you know, I try to practice with my transceiver at least, uh, you know, during the season, you know, once or twice a week. Um, and I've even started bringing it, bringing my transceiver on the resort with me, especially on days that's a powder day. Um, there was that unfortunate situation at Alpine, uh, this year. Um, I happened to be at Squaw that day. Um, and, you know, seeing the helicopters fly overhead and realizing that there was a situation unfolding next door to us was was quite sobering and that happens you know every few years i know there were some situations um at kirkwood and uh, alpines had a couple in their in their history as well and it's just kind of you know the way of things unfortunately um but people forget that you know even though you're on a resort you're still out there in the wilderness and the teams there are like absolutely some of the best um, at avalanche mitigation and, and um, um, avalanche rescue, um, but you know that's it's not a hundred percent safe, and uh, I think there's this veil of safety uh, sometimes at the ski resort that needs to you know kind of be addressed. And um, I don't know that I definitely I'm starting to see more people carry transceivers on the resort. I don't know if you have any ideas about that. Yeah, I, I carry transceiver on the resort. Um, pre- I pretty much I have a a good pocket in my ski pants that my um that's up in my chest and my bib and it just pretty much lives lives there and i just I honestly never take it out at this point um but no i see with the beacon at the ski resort um one for my own safety and if you can ever uh be of help if you do witness something um i was actually there that that same day i was actually right across the valley in the backcountry that day and uh was all of a sudden pretty spooked and just when we were finding um, I was like, this is a weird day. This is like, I don't, I don't like the snow and we ski, 
skied like a 20 degree tree run um, back down to the car, even though we had like perfect open bowls right next to us. And we just took the like lame run back down because we were weird. And as soon as we got down, we saw the helicopter flying over. Um, and it just speaks to kind of yeah the unpredictability of snow. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people believe the, the ski areas are like Disneyland and they should be all taken care of, but they're not. Um, and, you know, I've, uh, I've recommended pretty much everyone that like, hey, if you like skiing powder, you still should even take an AVI course just so you can, even if it's an intro one day course, just so you know a little bit about how to make decisions on where you go. And then from there, uh, speaking back to your um, comfortable, uh, your comfort level with your equipment and your, especially your rescue equipment, like we do massive training every year. And I pretty much devote a lot of December to um, one, either taking classes or doing stuff with team members or um, just being essentially out there working on it. And we will try to mimic the, the tension and the um, adrenaline of a real rescue and try to like, we have people like screaming in your ear the entire time while you're uh, trying to find someone so that you can kind of mimic what it's like to feel like your buddy, your best friend, your, your partner is three feet below the snow somewhere. You don't know where they are and your performance is dictating their survival like the emotions that run through you can really cloud your judgment and cloud the way you work with your, your beacon. And so we try to mimic those things so that it becomes instinctual. And so you can suppress those emotions and make the best decisions to, to um, conduct a safe rescue. It's uh, no, you know, you want to be able to pull out your beacon and literally have snowballs hitting you in the face and people screaming at you. And it's just, it feels like, nothing is happening other than you're looking at the beacon and thinking about where this person is going to be and how you're going to get them out. Um, that's the kind of like comfort level we, we try to, um, one practice and try to teach as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, there's that, there's that saying that, uh, you know, you don't want to have the best equipment and you want your buddy to have the best equipment because they're the ones that are going to be digging you out. So you, you know, you yeah. take that approach to the training as well. You want to train as hard as, you know, you, you think everyone else around you is training or hope that they're training because they're the ones that are going to be the one, you know, you know, digging you out. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's not a self-serving thing. You, you kind of have to treat it like um, the real world. And, and when you get down to it, the, the adrenaline's pumping, you have, that all needs to be second nature at that point, for sure. Um, I yeah. think, you know, there was like that, that example in, uh, what was it, episode seven with uh, Joffrey Peak, where you guys just by happenstance saw that guy uh, take a fall down the chute uh, or the cooler. And, you know, I, I don't know how you saw that, <laughs> but, Man, that guy is lucky that you did because, um, and you know, luckily you had the training and the experience to go along with that, um, and the decision making process was just like, uh, you know, exceptional. Um, so, you know, for people that haven't seen the episode, uh, I don't know, could if you want to walk us through exactly what happened. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, we were skiing this mountain, Joffrey Peak in BC, and uh, we kind of felt like we were the only people out that day. It was safe conditions, but it was like hard conditions and challenging conditions um but we went and skied our line the one we intended and right next to it is this coolar called central and uh i had already kind of deemed that line on this face to be 
not skiable per se, like skiable if you did it like very with a lot of rope work, a lot of anchor points and you could get down it, but it wasn't, didn't seem like a good ski line to me. Um, but it was the marquee line. And as we skied down, got down to the apron and pretty low on the talus field, I like looked up and I just saw something moving in the, in this couloir. And this was probably at least a kilometer, kilometer and a half away. And like, I thought it was a rock falling down or a bird flying. And then it kind of, the way it was moving, I realized like, oh my God, this is a person tumbling down this, in this couloir and then just comes spit out at probably like 70, 80 miles an hour, just get flung off like a 50 foot cliff and is just tomahawking for days. And at that moment, my partner Bjarne skis up to me and I'm like, tell him like, oh my God, like I just watched someone fall down of all of central couloir. Um, just three years prior, three people fell down that thing while climbing it and all of them perished. So it was like, you know, watching this, I was like, this is, I think this guy is either dead or if he's not, he's going to be right on the line. And at that point, just making our decisions, that was like truly the first like in like life on the line rescue I've ever gone through. And I was really thankful to know essentially the procedures from I've done um, wilderness first responder courses. And then I've been surrounded by guides and search and rescue people that I just kind of knew what the right decision was to do. But we even still went through some of the decisions that we could make. Like we both were like, do we both go up there and help this guy? Do, um, do we both stay down here? What, like, what is going to be our best course of action? And we only had an hour and a half of sunlight left before it was pitch black. And all these things were factoring into trying to make a clear headed decision to uh, get this guy out alive. And um, we, we really fortunately made all the right decisions. And in those moments, you don't know if it's the right decision, but you're trying to gather as much information as possible and factor in everything to make the right decision. Like we ended up separating. So Bjarne, uh, he decided to go up to the guy and get give him help, get him warm, uh, try to stabilize him, see what his injuries were anything like that. And then um, I decided to go for help. Um, my, my critical decision-making point was whether I press uh, the SOS button on a satellite transponder. So like a Garmin inReach or a Bivy stick, one of those things, or do I just go for help? I didn't have cell service, but knowing the, uh, essentially the backend logistics of exactly how, what happens when you hit the SOS button, and then also talking to search and rescue people of knowing how long it can take to mobilize. And then factoring in that we only had about an hour and a half of light, I, I decided that it was not in our best interest to press the SOS button. And it was in our best interest for me to get cell service and to talk to directly to 911, search and rescue and the helicopter company. Um, again, I was, as I illustrated in this uh, bonus episode that came out after it that was explaining the rescue. I was very fortunate to have like a personal relationship with this helicopter company. So I like call up my friend Vicky there and I'm like, Vicky, I need help now. Get a helicopter moving. Um, I'm about to call 911. So I call 911, report it. So essentially it's going through the correct parameters. She's already getting a helicopter mobilized, getting search and rescue called from her relationships. And we were able to get a helicopter um, from the point of the fall to rescue was only an hour and a half, um, which 
uh, generally through my research and what I've anecdotes of reading rescues, if you hit an SOS button, you're expecting minimum three hours to, to actually get a rescue. And that's like fast. Um, I generally would tell people if it's in the latter half of the day, you're spending the night out there. Um, so yeah, somehow we managed to help this guy survive. And um, I got debriefed by search and rescue um, after, and I was really happy to hear that they thought we couldn't have done it any bit better. Um, so um, I was just uh, lucky that we were there, that we witnessed it and you know made the correct decisions that I think were based off of kind of our experience and training in the mountains. And um, I'm just happy that, you know, helps save some guy's life. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, I think the, um, the logistics that you guys laid out and I think, you know, and most importantly, taking that five minutes or, you know, even two minutes just to talk with your partner and say, Hey, you know, what do we do? Okay. This is the plan. And then you stick to that plan and not deviate because, you know, some, so many times you see people just rush into a situation because they want to help. The intention is really, really good. But without some sort of formal action plan and organization, things kind of fall apart really quick and some things get missed. You, you might not have made the right decision. Um, so, you know, as as much as you want to just get right in there, it's really important to take a step back, take in the surrounding. And I think that goes back to even our, our talk about just having that instinct of your surroundings and, and what's happening, um, even with the terrain, but even during a rescue, just um, having that self-awareness to say, okay, I'm going to go do this. Do you agree? Are you going to go do this? Okay, go. Um, and you know, that led to a very success successful rescue. Thankfully, um, yeah, you guys made some really, really great decisions. Um, and then another thing that you mentioned that was really interesting too, is, um, having the wilderness first responder training. Um, I think, you know, just being a proponent for safety here, I, I think everyone along with some sort of, um, airy course or abbey rescue course um you know sh someone should that, that has the aptitude to go out into the wilderness in the backcountry should take some sort of first aid or wilderness first responder course um yeah what's really interesting about yeah. that too is um in in my training and in, in my background the only time that's actually come into play is for something not rescue related um professionally it's actually come into play when someone you know faints at the airport terminal or i happened upon a motor vehicle accident um, both those stories actually happened and i was thankful that i had the the training um, and the experience to actually you know drop what i was doing and help those people out um, so it's just interesting that you, you take a training and a course for one thing and it actually becomes useful somewhere else in your life yeah, no, I actually have a similar experience. I think it was in my first year of, of taking the course and I had to help someone who's having um, uh, uh, just brain farted on it. Um, the beginning stages of a heart attack. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what is the A word? I always forget. Um, the, and so that was my first instance of actually using it. But yeah, and it, it, going back to um, the what we're talking about with avalanche courses, like one, um, as I was mentioning, you can kind of, you can't fully replace, but you can replace uh, avalanche education through a decade of experience. You can't replace medical training with right. a decade of experience. <laughs> right. you, you don't get get thrown in a, a, you know, inside the back of a ambulance and they're like, cool, uh, just go. 
Yeah, you know, exactly. you, you have to take that. I almost found the wilderness first responder to be the most interesting and uh, most useful course I've taken because, uh, because yeah, I, I, I realized it was 10 years ago and I was like, wait a minute, we're going deep in the backcountry and we are really out there and we're doing stupid stuff like jumping big cliffs. And I was like, if one of us gets hurt, like, we're just going to wait three hours for hopefully someone to help us. You know, like what if they have a broken femur? And it was the first time I was like, I have to take this course and um, started on the medical training um, path. And I think that was, you know, it's helped uh, make decisions. I, you know, because I went for the rescue, I didn't actually help with the medical side of things in this last rescue. But as you mentioned, I've actually used it more in real world examples than uh, necessarily backcountry examples. Yeah, it's it's such an important uh, skill set to have. Um, you know, I'm, it kind of dumbfounds me that people don't take the time to just do a simple, uh, basic life support CPR or first aid class because it's so applicable. Just even like in your own home, like if a loved one has an issue, you, you're ready to at least um, mitigate anything that's happening until EMS or somebody else arrives. It's just such an, an important skill set to have, uh, even if it's very elementary. Um, For sure. And then such a crucial part of something um, when you are encountering a situation like that as you know extreme as the example you just walked through with the the rescue or uh, something is maybe not as extreme but you know somebody like having a you know a minor uh, atrial fibrillation or something like that or like fainting in an airport or something you know it could be in an traumatizing and um you know once the adrenaline wears off you're kind of left with your own thoughts and you're like wow did that just happen um and in some cases it's actually you know very scarring um so i'm just curious as to you know if you've had other experiences um i know you mentioned this is like the one major rescue that you've actually had to conduct yourself um but you know were there other incidents or injuries in the backcountry or in your day-to-day life where you had to take a step back and say like well i need to kind of like reassess this and, and talk to somebody about this and, and walk through a little bit of like a self debrief. Um, I would say that happens. There's not any one moment that's like that. It happens just all the time, the the self debriefs and the, the kind of the, oh my God, I got to learn more about this. Um, there are a few moments and generally like, yeah, I've been involved in other like more minor rescues and trying to, you know, get people out with a blown knee and stuff like that, but nothing kind of like life on the line, like this, la- uh, that one last year in Joffrey Peak. Um, but overall, uh, I think, again, it just starts back to this, like, the mountains are incredibly complex, and they have uh, a pace to them that is unmatched than any sort of other world we live in. And to move through them takes essentially like a lifetime of knowledge. And as I even mentioned before, is like, that knowledge is then even also being uh Know, passed down through generations. So I feel like if you're not self-evaluating and constantly seeking knowledge to get through through the mountains and get through them safely, um, then you're probably actually doing something wrong. Um, I feel like every day I'm I'm learning something. I just uh, it's even if it's the most basic ski tour, there's probably something I learned out there that day, and you got to kind of take that in and apply that into your skill set of knowledge. Yeah, it's it's super important to go through those those debriefs and those self assessments. And I remember, um, you know, touching upon that story again when I happened upon that motorcycle accident. 
Um, it was the first time that I have actually put some of those skills into practice outside of um, search and rescue. And it, you know, I, I happened upon the scene. I was actually on my way down to Pismo to do some surfing for my birthday. And all of a sudden, all these brake lights started happening. And we're like, what's going on here? Like, we're on a back road. This shouldn't be happening. And, you know, lo and behold, some guy rear-ended a car and was flung off his motorcycle, you know, a good 70 feet and ended up all contorted on the ground. Uh, luckily, he had a helmet and protective gear on, but um, like his, his tibia was sticking through the skin. And it was, it was a, a bit of a gruesome scene. And the first time that I had actually really seen a, a bone fracture of that magnitude um, and just the, the raw um, emotion that kind of overwhelms you. And you're like, okay, I need to act. Um, and you, you get the, the blinders kind of go up and you, know, you, you go into that um, muscle instinct and you, you go through you know, your normal checklist of things that you're supposed to be going through. And, you know, it was crazy because at the end of all of it, when, you know, we were able to load him up into the back of the ambulance and um, the police were telling me to move my car out of the way, um, you know, I, I looked at myself and I had a Hawaiian shirt on, um, some black swim trunks and these latex gloves on covered in blood. And it was just like a, a very um, shocking moment and i had totally forgotten in that entire time that my buddy was standing there holding my large first aid kit and he goes what the heck just happened yeah. um so it, it you know you almost you know you're treating injuries but by acting in some of those situations there are some mental injuries that can um, form and it's just so important to go through that and to talk it over and to not uh compartmentalize it and um you know, we, we did that on the rest of our drive back. We, you know, we walked through it together and, and, you know, made sure that we were all okay and we weren't um, shooken up too much by it. Um, but, you know, at the same time, too, it's also good to just go through, you know, was that the right, the right decision? Um, what can we do better next time to improve? You know, was that the right piece of gear? So on and so forth. Yeah, no, no, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's vastly important. And one of the things that's like from your story and just kind of the, like one of the takeaways I have from that is that, it's not necessarily like the best feeling in the world to help save someone's lives. That sounds sort of weird, but what I like to prepare for is it is one of the single worst feelings in the world to be helpless in a situation like that, to roll up onto a scene um, like, like I did up in uh, Joffrey Peak and watching that and what you did on a, uh, on the motorcycle and, or rolling up on someone severely injured on a motorcycle and to be helpless and have no idea what to do is one of like the worst feelings in the world because you want to help. You're like, there's somebody dying in front of me and I'm sitting here like an idiot, not able to do anything. And in those moments, you're like, I wish I had his training. I wish I had all that. And I like to prepare myself for like all situations that I can imagine that uh, are gonna most likely happen to me and to not be helpless in that situation, to have some sort of deal. So it's it's not necessarily, I'm going to be the most perfect person for that. I am not an ER doctor. So if I roll up someone in the backcountry critically injured, like I'm not gonna be able to, you know, do a tracheotomy in, uh, uh, in the field or maybe save this guy's life to the utmost of ability, but I at least have some skills enough to give this person more of a chance of survival. And that feeling um, of feeling helpless out there is something I never want to feel. So I'm constantly seeking knowledge so I don't feel helpless.
Yeah, I, I, that would probably be the, I mean, I've, I've felt that before, um, you know, long before I got involved with search and rescue and, and had the training. Um, it is not a good feeling, like you're saying. And, um, you know, also as like a disclaimer, because, you, you know, you were mentioning, you know, like intubation or things like that. Um, you know, it, it's also very important to, to remember that, you know, while you have training, it's important to never go beyond your training and to, I think, never put yourself in a situation that you are now becoming a risk um, to others and that you might need rescuing yourself if you were to engage in that because, you know, it's really morbid to say um, and it's hard to um, think this way during a situation like that. But, um, you know, you don't want to make a rescue for one turn into a rescue for two. Um, so that's just a really important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, no, definitely. That's like the number one thing you kind of you train about. And then you also got to, um, you know, know that in, in a scenario as well. Like if you if you are out in the backcountry and you're making decisions at five o'clock in the afternoon, the sun goes down at six o'clock that are risky and dangerous. You got to know that like and maybe it's a high avalanche day. And if something does happen, search and rescue is not going to probably come for you because if they're going to put themselves and 12 other people at serious risk to um uh, to come help you that that's their number one goal is not make 12 people need to be rescued. And um, so you even have to factor that in into your own decision making. Like if something goes wrong here, what are the chances and likelihood of of, of rescue? And, uh, and you know, it, if it's nine o'clock in the morning on, uh, you know, a Saturday and, you know, search and rescue is mobilized at the middle of the season and there's not too many hazards and something does go wrong, you know, You'll probably have rescue if that happens at five o'clock on, uh, you know, on a high avi day in a snowstorm. You're probably not going to have rescue. Um, it's something we actually just recently factored into a decision to kind of pull the plug on an expedition trip because, um, although, yeah, we could probably do it and we could probably do it safe amid what's going on with a global pandemic. One of the reasons to uh, stop this trip is because if we, for some reason, needed a rescue we might be putting the rescuers in jeopardy just by getting in the same area with each other. Um, you know, as we all know, search and rescue is volunteer based and it's just coming from people that have other jobs and live in wide ranges of places. We don't have a search and rescue in America that's like in Europe where it's just all sitting in an office like a fire station and waiting to go and help you. Um, so if we were to get in a situation where we need rescue, we're putting those guys and gals at risk just to get in a helicopter to be within six feet of each other. So it was kind of a, a factor into canceling our trip because it's like the the uh, it might not rescue us and we're putting other people in danger for doing this trip ourselves. Yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, we're hearing a lot of different stories coming out of different areas right now. There was a whole article on Outside Magazine about uh, a rescue that they had to perform uh, for... I think it was a, a crew of snowboarders that um, ended up, you know, triggering, triggering an avalanche um, because you know they wanted to go outside and and kind of continue life um, as normal. Um, but you know, there are repercussions for decisions like that, and you know, one of the ones that's the highest right now is just you know coming into contact with people that you know we're trying to avoid. You know, of course, search and rescue is going to go out. You know, that that's what we're here for, and that's what you know we signed up for, and we're you know. We have that call, uh, that call of duty that we are there to answer rescue calls at any point, 24-7, 365. Um, but, 
you know, the right thing to do is is to not go out and 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 do that, you know, bag that peak that you've been eyeing for, you know, a year or so, because you know that peak's not going to go anywhere. You know that that run's not going anywhere. It'll be there. Um, yeah. And I think you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, you got to pull pull the cord on some of the trips that you had planned or um, some of the hikes that have been you know itching at you for a while, and and just make the right call and say like, I'll sit and wait. You know, take the time to brush up on some perishable skills and, um, you know, do some knot tying exercises or, you know, stay in shape, uh, work out in the garage or something like that. You know, that's what I think we, everyone should be concentrating on right now. Yeah, totally. Dream of all your, you know, write down all your list of things you want to do, do all the Google research, read every single trip report. Like it's a good time to sit down and, and dream about what you want to do next and, and plan that and yeah, not factor and, and not get out there and try and do it now. Like, um, it, it's a really interesting dis discussion going on right now because of, of the tendency for outdoor people to want to go outdoors. And there's this level that you're at is like, should you be able to, should you not? What level is, is acceptable and what level is not? And um, it's all points on all sides have validity um, because, you know, the argument that no one should be out there and doing uh, no one should be out there and everyone should be doing absolutely nothing has validity. There's also validity to being like, well, going for uh, an hour ski tour and 20 degree tree run just to get some exercise and clear your head and keep physically fit. Like, is that really putting anyone around you or a hospital at risk? Um, if you're by yourself doing all the proper social distancing stuff, staying away from busy trails, you're like, no, nah, that's got validity. You can, you could do that and you could be safe with that. Um, so it's, it's an interesting discussion. And I think it, you know, it comes down to the personality and I think it just really have, you need to do a lot of self reflecting on your what you're doing what your goals are what your skills are what puts you in any danger of injury um and then also factoring in what's currently going on the hospitals the, your local hospital situation right now um all, all those things have to be kind of factored in it's just you know instead of what ski mountaineering is, is making all these critical like self-awareness decisions and research that goes into it for a really gnarly line. We have to factor that, everyone has to factor that in for let's say a cruisy mountain bike ride or a ski tour up the, the ski resort. Um, and it's kind of interesting to see how certain people are reacting to it and uh, certain people are not. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious to see, um, cause you're kind of right in the thick of it uh, up in Tahoe. Um, you know, if, if people have that feeling that they must go out into the backcountry, um, you know, what advice do you have and like, how do you see the situation right now that we're all in, um, altering, you know, small mountain towns, the resorts, and maybe like the ski industry as a whole? Yeah, well, uh, we're going to see backcountry skiing get really popular. I heard, I heard all our local stores sold out of everything the day after <laughs> all the ski resorts closed. We didn't have a shelter in place yet. <clears throat> and I will say, I was getting slammed with direct messages of people telling me, asking me like, where do I go in Tahoe? Where's the best place to go ski touring? And I'm, I didn't respond to a single one of them because like, if this is your first time you're trying to go ski touring, now is not the time to learn right. um, how to do that. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it is interesting because I think even 
regional decisions have to be made. Like what's going on in Colorado with the snowpack there? It's, it's you know, typically a much less stable snowpack than Tahoe. Um, and where you're going has to be factored in. A lot of things in Tahoe that we ski tour to is in the trees from peak to, to the bottom, to the valley, to your car. Um, it's not very steep and, you know, we have a snowpack here that is very, very traditionally stable. So to me, it's like if you are a highly experienced backcountry skier um, and you are maybe avoiding the normal trailheads or, you know, just going for one lap and that's with the person you're quarantined with, like your, your partner or something like that, then yeah, I think that's okay. But like driving down to the east side to go for some bigger lines, that's where I think you draw the line. Like even myself being a professional that does this for a living and, you know, who thinks I make good decisions in the mountains, I'm not, I'm still not going to do that. Even though I feel like I have 100% chance of being safe, it's still, that's kind of over the line to me. Yeah, I think that's the right call. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm curious too, I, there was uh, that bonus episode where, um, you and your partners at, uh, arcade, um, you know, we're just, you know, jumping in and, and doing everything you can just to help out the, the community. It was just really awesome to see, um, the efforts, you know, even though the office was closed down, just trying to, you know, grab, what was it like a couple dozen masks for the, the local, uh, medical center there. Um, and I know you guys have a, a really slim, um, hospital system there. I think there's only like four to six beds and like two ICU units in Truckee. Um, yeah. so like a little bit goes a long way and I'm just, um, curious as to, you know, is that still ongoing or have you seen other examples of, you know, the community helping itself out? Uh, it seems like the outdoor industry is stepping up heavy. It seems like a lot of, of, of like companies are stepping up, but I mean, the outdoor industry, I think is stepping up really heavy because it's all based in small mountain towns and they know that it's a tight knit community, the outdoor community. So I think they kind of have this connection to their local community. And I just, you know, I told the story with Arcade of what they were doing because I just all of a sudden found it incredibly fascinating and I thought it would be inspiring for other people and companies and just kind of to know like these small businesses and small mountain towns and uh, are, you know, they're good businesses and they, they have connections to their community and seeing what Tristan Queen did, our CEO of, of Arcade, um, I've been in lots of talks with him about, you know, employees, the financial structure, everything that's going on with the economy. And then he just all of a sudden mentioned, he's like, yeah, I just got uh, 120 mass shift um, and I've got a, another hundred and potentially even more coming after that because I saw on social media, one of my friends, it's a nurse, her putting her one uh, face mask that she has in a plastic baggie and going home with it. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. That's, you know, really cool to hear. And I think I was trying to tell the story because all we hear of is very negative news going on for, for good reason. Cause there's a lot of negative stuff. That's kind of a bummer on there. And to have a little story of hope and a little story of people trying to do good is, is really good. There's uh you know, it's, it's nice to share that and feel a little bit of like, Oh yeah. Like there's, there is some good in this world right now. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta you gotta elevate the the good stories as much as the the bad ones get elevated. Um, and it was just so cool to see such a selfless act like that come um, from the guys at Arcade. It was it was really cool. Um, you know, there's some other examples too where you know, I, I started to see some nurses and doctors show up with uh, ski goggles on. It was a, a, an awkward look in the hospital environment, but it was just really great to see that someone had 
taken a really unique and creative approach to a problem. Um, and I think yeah, the outdoor then, community can... is so, um, you know, ripe to do stuff like that. Totally. Now it's really cool. Cause I like, um, Smith, a sponsor of mine, I just had a uh, connection in New York and New York hospitals right now hit me up. He's like, we need goggles and, uh, safety glasses. Do you have, can you send any? And I hit up Smith and I was like, Hey, I've got a guy. Can you send out and send out 20 pairs of like medical kind of grade goggles? Um, and and safety masks to them and it was like that's it was like overnighted at the massive cost to smith and they're just like yeah no problem you know businesses shut down no one's buying things but they're willing to send thousands of dollars worth of product on their own dime to help people in the field in the hospitals right now it's like it's cool to see and it's cool to see our outdoor community kind of have have each other's back so heavily yeah that's it's really rad um so I guess that, you know, that brings up the interesting topic of, you know, where, where do you see yourself on the other side of this, uh, when things start to calm down and, you know, what's the, the current state of the 50 and, you know, what's, you know, your next, uh, your goal after all this is over. Oh man, it's so day to day. Like you never know. Um, uh, right now it's just like, well, the 50 project is on pause. It is definitely not fading the dream. If anything, it's like firing it up a little harder. So um yeah whenever i you know whenever it's socially responsible and acceptable and in good health for the community to restart i'll restart the project and try to keep ticking off lines because it's kind of what i love to do and what i want to do so um whenever that day comes i that day hits and if there's snow on a mountain and a line in condition i am going so um <laughs> there's there's some chance that could happen in june um i would really really like that to happen but we'll see um i you know um in the meantime i'm just taking it day by day um back kind of working with arcade a little bit more trying to help out in every sort of way it's so all hands on deck i'm trying to stay as fit as possible i'm staring at my kettlebell selection and my trx right next to me in my office and uh hanging with uh my my wife and my dog and talking to my parents a lot and just uh yeah getting <laughs> through of, this i i feel yeah virtual like happy hours going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally yeah we're gonna have we have a, a friend's birthday party tonight that's uh we're gonna do a zoom party so oh, have yeah. a cocktail zoom party but um but otherwise yeah just uh i feel really fortunate i know there's a lot of people um way way worse off um my job is decently secure i'm in a i'm in a house i'm, in, I'm healthy i'm with my wife um i feel i feel good and my kind of heart goes out to the people that are you know struggling economically through here and then the, the health of so many of our um fellow fellow humans you know eighty thousand people around this world that are dying because of this it's uh yeah, it's it's a terrible thing and i hope we can get it under control and learn from this and better prepare for the next time yeah for sure it's definitely a, a dress rehearsal you know as crazy as that sounds it definitely you know if we take it seriously we'll have a it'll have a lesser impact on us, on us next time that something like this happens. But, um, yeah, definitely, you know, shout out to all the, the people on the front lines out there, you know, nurses, doctors, EMTs, first responders, you know, there's even folks on our team that are in the thick of it right now on the front lines, just taking it day by day, but man, they're, they're doing some like really incredible selfless work. Um, so just hats off to them. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, congrats on the, the first 25 and, uh, good luck on the next 25. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll catch up at the, the end of 25. It could be in a couple of years. It could be mm, 20. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I'm definitely going to be binge watching that when the next 25 come out for sure. Cool. Well, yeah, it'll take, it'll take a little bit of time to get those done, but um, I'll be working on them. To watch episodes of The 50, subscribe to Cody Townsend on YouTube. Or for more information on The 50 Project, visit skithe50.com. That's skithe50.com. This episode was brought to you by the Bay Area Mountain Rescue Unit. For more information, please visit bamru.org. That's B-A-M-R-U.org. For more information about the podcast, please visit theunpackedpodcast.com.